Today on Abounding Grace, we spotlight the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. This is amazing grace. Welcome once again to Abounding Grace, online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Pastor Ed Taylor will bring today's message centered on the reproving work of the Spirit of God. One of the ministries of the Spirit is to convict the world of sin. If you're a believer, you're familiar with this all too well. You're in sin and you're miserable. Deep down inside, you feel conviction that what you did was wrong. That's the Holy Spirit at work. Well, let's learn more about this now as we join Pastor Ed in John 16. Take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 16. We are studying through the Gospel of John verse by verse, chapter by chapter in our weekend services. And we looked at the last six verses or the first six verses last time in John 16. This section of John, John 14, 15, and 16 is known as the Olivet Discourse. And the reason it's known as the Olivet Discourse is because it was given on the Mount of Olives and it is a teaching. Jesus is taking his disciples aside and he's preparing them for the worst days of their lives which are just up ahead. He's been traveling with them and teaching them and loving them. They've watched him heal. They've watched him feed. They've watched him serve. And in just a few days... From this section of scripture, Jesus will be betrayed, tortured, and brutally murdered on a Roman cross. And they'll take him down from the cross and they'll bury him. And for three days, three nights, his body will be in that tomb. And it's on the third day that he rises again. And then many days later, he ascends into heaven. We look back at it now and we see the end result and we're, we're joyful, we're happy, we're saved, our sins are forgiven, but you have to put yourself in the place of the disciples. This is rocking their world and it hasn't even happened yet. They're anticipating some difficult situation, but they can't conceive how the death of Jesus Christ, their best friend, could possibly be anything good for them. And already in John 14, you'll recall, he tells, Jesus does, his disciples, don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled because it's a troubling time for them. Then he says in verse 1 of chapter 16, he says, I'm telling you these things so that you won't be made to stumble. It's going to be earth-shattering. And what Jesus is doing is he's preparing them for what's up ahead. And if you haven't learned by now, it's important that you grasp this truth. God is always preparing us for what's up ahead. He he is using what's in our lives today, preparing us for what's up ahead. Doing a work in us today, but knowing that there's still more ahead for us. And he's preparing us. And while the disciples 
we're being prepared at this time for the death and burial of Jesus, I think there's a work of preparation on our heart today as we await the soon return of Jesus Christ. Because he did ascend into heaven and he promised to return. And we believe in the doctrine known as imminence. Imminence. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-E. Imminence. What that means is we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We believe that he can return at any time, at any moment. That there's nothing left in the prophetic calendar, according to God's word, that needs to be fulfilled for Jesus to return. And we believe that he could return at any time. It would be nice if he returned right now, before I finish the Bible study. We'd be raptured up into his presence. We'll be the generation that doesn't see death. That would be glorious and wonderful. There's a word in the Bible. It's only used one time. You might have heard it used and you don't even know what it means. I want to help you with that today. For those that get so caught up in the coming of the Lord and desire him to come back and agree with it, you shout out the word Maranatha. Maranatha. It means even so, Lord, come quickly. So for those of you that are excited about the coming of the Lord, let's shout it out. You ready? One, two, three. Maranatha. Even so, come quickly, Lord. And God is preparing us for the return of Jesus Christ. Now I have to say, we firmly believe the Bible teaches in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial return of Jesus to rapture his church, which will then usher in the seven-year great tribulation period where God's wrath will be poured upon a God-rejecting world, which is pretty much unveiled for us through the book of Revelation. And because we believe and teach that doctrine... We're often accused of teaching a form of escapism. Oh, don't, you guys shouldn't be teaching that because you're just teaching the people to go on with life and do whatever they want because if, they, if the Lord's coming back, then they don't need to worry about how they live their life. They can just live it to the rapture and throw caution to the wind and live however they want. Now listen, if that is your attitude, you have sorely misunderstood the scriptures. Because it's not God's heart for you and I to live for ourselves. The Bible says and teaches us that we have been bought with a price, the very precious blood of Jesus Christ, and we live for him now, not for ourselves. And we aren't teaching escapism at all. Because the Bible is very clear that the soon return of Jesus Christ and a living a life hopeful for his return, according to 1 John chapter 3, will develop purity in your life. Just the opposite of what we're accused of. You'll develop a pure life because you'll recognize that Jesus can come at any time. And we need to bring as many people to heaven with us as possible. We're not to live for ourselves, we're to live for him. But even for those that might still think of the doctrine of the imminent return and the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture is escapism, let me show you something. Turn over to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21. Jesus is teaching the disciples on the last days. And he says something very interesting that I want you to see. Because in one sense, the idea of escapism and living fleshly lives, that is not the heart of God. It's not the, fl- the heart of this ministry. But in another sense, we are teaching. I am going to teach you to pray that you might escape the great tribulation period. And I'll tell you why. Luke chapter 21, verse 34. Luke 21, verse 34. Jesus is teaching and he says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the cares of this life that that day come on you unexpectedly for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth watch therefore verse 36 
and pray always that you may be counted worthy to, what does your Bible say? Escape. Pray that you'd be worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And so it's no great spiritual thing to say, I want to go through the great tribulation period. It rather, Jesus says, pray that you're the generation that escapes it. That you don't have to go through it. But even so, while I don't believe the Bible teaches that the church of Jesus Christ will be here for the great tribulation period, that's no reason to not be prepared, trusting in the Lord, standing strong through the trials and difficulties of life, just in case the Lord may have some go through the great tribulation period or all. The disciples and we receive the teaching that we need to be prepared for what's up ahead. So don't be surprised, Jesus says. Don't be stumbled. Don't be offended. Don't be scandalized. Don't allow your hearts to be troubled. Persecution and difficulties come to us all. We're going to face trials, going to face tribulations. And now, with that in mind, in John chapter 16, the disciples are about to face tribulation, and Jesus is preparing them, just like he's preparing us. We left off in verse 6, so let's pick up there in John 16. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, verse 9, because they don't believe in me. Of righteousness, verse 10, because I go to my father and you see me no more. And of judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. One of the blessings of the departing of Jesus, one of the blessings of his crucifixion, one of the blessings of them losing their best friend will be the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come in a new relationship with believers. But before we look at another ministry of the Holy Spirit, I want us to pause here and consider the significance of what Jesus is saying in verse 7. He says, nevertheless, you're sad already. But nevertheless, even though you're sad, I'm going to tell you something else. It might even make you sadder. But I'm going to tell you, he says. Nevertheless, I'm going to tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. Again, put yourself in their sandals for a minute. You have dedicated three years of your life to this man. He has healed people in front of you. He's fed, you, you were participating in the miracle when he fed the 5,000, when he fed the 4,000. You've left your family. You completely left them. You didn't bring anything with you. You left your career. You flipped over the tax collecting table and you said, I'm putting my life in this. I, I'm committing my, this is Messiah. This is God's promised one. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to listen to him. He's my teacher. He's my rabbi. He is the promised one. And for three years, you've done nothing but hang out with him, truly developing a relationship. You have hung out with him. You have learned from him. You've slept in the same area with him. You've prayed with him. He's encouraged you. You've laughed together. You've perhaps even cried together. You have spent forever. And this man's telling you, your best friend, the one that you've completely lived with for three plus years, it's to your advantage that I leave you. I don't think that would be easy to receive. I don't think I'd agree with him. 
Knowing my own personality? I think if, maybe I just keep it on my inside voice, but you know what, Jesus, you can't get away with the inside voice, so he already knows what you're thinking. And I would just think, no, it's not to my advantage that you leave Jesus. To my advantage, you stay. These have been the best three years of my life. Uh, Everything that I've left is nothing compared to the time I've spent with you. I don't think it's to my advantage. I don't think that at all. And while we're not there then, we are here now. And I believe we have the same response often when the circumstances and situations of our lives are ordained or allowed by God and they are for our advantage. But we don't think so. We would want things a different way. If it was up to me, I would do this. In their hearts, I'm sure they would want Jesus to stay with them physically. How could this possibly be to any advantage? And I'm sure there are times in your life where you've prayed and you've asked and circumstances have come and and the word of the Lord is very clear. It's to your advantage, but you just don't agree. You wrestle with it. You you, You are... having to deal with the reality of, of what's going on now, according to what your plans might have been, according to what you wanted, according to how you, how you envisioned what this year might look like. And the Lord's just saying, you look, it's to your advantage. I'm going to work all things together for the good, for those that love me, those that are called according to my purposes and my will. And if you've ever felt that way, I believe the disciples are here in that same place because it was to their advantage. Up to this point, they had the physical presence of Jesus. But the problem with that, of course, is that when Jesus, the eternal son of God, came to earth from heaven and took on the form of a human being, the only one ever to walk on the earth fully man and fully God, he also took on the limitations of a human body. So they can only be in one place at one time in humanity. So that when he was with them, that was great. But when they were separated from them, There was no abiding presence of the Holy Spirit this time like you and I have. And they didn't have the kind of ministry that Jesus is saying, look, as good as it's been with me personally, physically, it's going to be much better when I leave. Why? Because the Spirit will be sent. And now we have a new relationship with the Spirit of God. And I don't want you to miss this in verse 8. Because we counted up in the uh, first service, no less than nine times does Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit, look, notice verse 8, as He. Because the Spirit of God also is the eternal. And as the eternal Spirit of God, He is a person. Not a force, not an it, not a thing. And that's very important to grasp because the Jehovah Witnesses, in their doctrine, in their false teaching, when they come to your door... This would be a great place to take them in your scriptures in chapter 16 as you see Jesus himself refers to the Holy Spirit as a person. And he would know because he's a part of the Godhead, the Trinity. And so you just need to know that. Sometimes we read through scriptures so fast that you may miss nine times the Holy Spirit is given personhood. It's not a force. It's not something that just jumps out of of God's finger and shoots out at you. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You have a relationship with with the Holy Spirit. So he's telling them, I've been limited in my body, but it's going to be good for you because the Spirit's going to come and do a work of conviction around the world. Around the world. Now those of you that have studied with us for years, you remember, uh, not so much, it was probably last year in John chapter 3, when we were studying uh, in John 3, we learned about the Spirit's regenerating work. Because he does, he regenerates, he saves. And then years ago, we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
There we learn of the Spirit's work of restraining, especially as it relates to the, to the rapture of the church, that there's a restraining. Evil is held back right now because of the presence of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth. The Spirit of God restraining evil because of you and because of me. I mean, who else on the planet right now is really standing up for the unborn? It's the church. Why? Because we know that life is precious. Most of the world, around the world, not just the United States, but most of the world thinks that abortion is absolutely acceptable and okay. But the restraining force of the church, the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be the final voices that stand up for righteousness on the earth. But there's coming a day where that restraining force will be removed. And I believe that's a reference to the rapture of the church. And you know what happens then? The Great Tribulation period, all hell breaks loose. Today, I want, you to, I want to introduce you to the reproving work of the Holy Spirit. The regenerating work, John 3. 1 Thessalonians 2 is the restraining work. And now today, I want to introduce you to the reproving work, where the Holy Spirit speaks strong words. Notice, and when he has come, verse 8, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The word convict here uh, is, the English translation is very accurate to the Greek translation. It means to be found guilty. It means to be found guilty. So the work of the Holy Spirit on the earth today is to bring people to a guiltiness of their sin, to a guiltiness of their unrighteousness, I'll explain that in a moment, and the guiltiness of judgment to come, that they will face an eternal judgment, what the Bible refers to as the great white throne judgment. That unbelievers, those that have rejected Jesus Christ, will face God. And this is the work of the Spirit. Notice, number one, he convicts of sin. Conviction of sin. Why? Because not all the little sins and not all the little mistakes and not all the little things that we do, but rather because of unbelief, he says in verse 9, because they don't believe in me. There's a conviction upon a person's life because of unbelief. The greatest sin a person could ever commit and die in is known as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And while there's many opinions of what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, I've come to the conclusion that it's very simple. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the rejection of Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's the only sin that will never be forgiven. You won't get a second chance after death. The Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. You're not going to get a second chance. There's no such thing as purgatory where you can work things out. You're going to be either in the presence of the Lord or you're going to be in a place of Hades awaiting a final judgment. That's it. There's no other option. The Holy Spirit convicts people of that truth. Secondly, notice, the Holy Spirit convicts of righteousness, of righteousness. And now this is an interesting one because notice, he says, they convicts of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And here's what I believe Jesus is teaching us. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring a conviction to our lives of our guiltiness of our own unrighteousness and of the righteousness of Jesus. And here's what I mean. His death on the cross proves, and his resurrection proves, that he was all that he said and claimed to be. That he was truly righteous. Now, we don't use the word righteous much these days. Maybe in the 70s you would use righteous. You might song about righteous. You know, that's really righteous, man. Whatever, like that. We don't use it anymore. The way we would use it today, the word we would probably use today is perfect. To be convicted of Jesus' perfection, which would lead you to be convicted of what? Your own imperfection or your own unrighteousness. And that's a very difficult thing in our world because our world has its own form of righteousness. Did you know that? Our, our world has its own form of righteousness. You know what it's called? Yell it out if you know. Self-righteousness. 
Self-righteousness. And here's, here's what self-righteousness looks like. Because you guys know it. When you're sharing the gospel with people and you're talking to them about something you learned in church or talking to them in their difficulty and what their relationship with God is, a lot of times the response that you'll get back is, well, well I'm, a, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And in many times they are very good and they do many good things. And it's, you, you don't want to really argue with that because it is. But here's what they're really saying. What they're saying is this. I've set up a standard of goodness that I meet. And I set it up, and because I meet that standard of goodness, and I can keep it, then I consider myself a good person. But you'll notice, especially those of you that have done this in your own life, you'll notice that the standard of goodness is always something you can keep. You never set up a standard that you can't keep, where you're always falling short, and like, I'm not a good person, because I can never live up. Most of the time, people set up self-righteous standards that they can keep, and no one else can. So they become the judge of everyone else's life. It happens at work every day, doesn't it? I don't know if you still have the water cooler at work, but whatever you, wherever you go to the break room and you got those jibber-jabber folks there, there's always somebody bad-mouthing somebody at work, comparing them to their own. I hope you guys don't get caught up in that. You should just walk into one of those conversations one day with the biggest Bible. You say, I just want to insert Jesus into this. Con-. No, don't do that. They'll get all mad at you. But you got to do that in a way. You can't let people be bad-mouthing. You know, you want to come alongside and encourage them, even within the church. We don't want to allow gossip and slander to be tearing down brothers and sisters. The Bible says that we're not to bite and devour one another. We're to build one another up. We're to encourage them in the Lord. We're to walk in the agape love of Jesus Christ. And so the conviction of righteousness is that, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to bring us to a place where we know that we've sinned and that secondly, we've fallen short of the glory of God. We ourselves are not righteous. We're not perfect. And then finally, there's a conviction of judgment. And notice he says, because in verse 11, the ruler of this world is judged. Today on Abounding Grace, Pastor Ed Taylor has been in the book of John. We're going through the gospel from start to finish. To hear today's message again, go to AboundingGraceRadio.com. And we have an app that we'd like to recommend. It's free and available on all platforms. This is another way to listen to Pastor Ed's teachings, including this present series. Search for Ed Taylor or Calvary Church and download our church app today. Pastor Ed, we're currently offering your book, Sure and Steady. Why did you write that, and what's the purpose behind it? Larry, Sure and Steady is the culmination of 20 years of discipleship here at Calvary Church of the pastors, the leaders, the elders, and even the servants. They, the book is filled with simple principles that will help a man and help a woman succeed in ministry. Uh, to make it, to finish their race well, things that are personal, things that are practical, things that even if, because originally we wrote it, and by the way, again, we are, you might be the first to hear this, but we are editing it for ministry servants. So we're going to change the wording a little bit so it can be used in a greater way with those that are serving but originally we wrote this for pastors, assistant pastors, because there has been a lack of very practical help for those taking on that responsibility. But I would even say a lack of help. I was just speaking to a pastor friend of mine in Southern California recently, today actually, talking about how he was never discipled, never really helped, never really given hands-on direction. Uh, yeah, we get discipled from the pulpit for sure, but there is that need for hands-on direction like Jesus gave. This is a hands-on book. So don't let the title scare you as it uses the word pastor. Instead, take the principle and apply it in your life. Very important, very helpful, 
it, it's not a book to read actually either. It's a workbook. So you read the principle, it's maybe one or two paragraphs, and then there's a lot of open space after some scriptures that are mentioned as well that you can jot notes down and, and let it be a prayer journal, let it be morning devotions, let it be a tool for discipleship. And I know the Lord's using it. He, we're going through it with the staff right now, our entire staff. Uh, everyone that is here during the day on Wednesdays, um, uh, we have the church side and the school side. So the church side's going through it and uh, our administrators going through it with the school. It's just, I say all that just to say, it's a really cool tool and it's over 20 years of trial and error that have helped to develop it with the goal of helping you learn how to serve more effectively and succeed. So grab a copy. I know the Lord will use it. Request a copy of Sure and Steady by Pastor Ed, a wonderful tool to help you learn and grow in pastoral ministry. Order an extra copy to give to your pastor. It's available now at calvaryco.store. Please also remember us in your giving to the Lord. It's how we're able to come to you on stations like this one all across the nation. And then join us tomorrow on Abounding Grace when Pastor Ed Taylor returns to the Gospel of John. This is amazing Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.